Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. Have you ever wondered if this is the future we were supposed to have? We could have had solar become the cheapest form of electricity around the turn of the millennium. So think Spice Girls. If grid-based electricity was in competition with off-grid solar from the get-go, we might have had a very different energy paradigm altogether. I have no doubt that George Cove really was an inventor and that I think he actually did stumble upon a, a, the photovoltaic effect experimentally. So if we fast forward to today's COP28 and we see the way oil companies are operating within this climate conversation, it, it's absolutely stunning, right? I mean, we've seen statements from ExxonMobil or even from the COP president that are frankly extremely damaging. The best time to scale up renewables and address climate change was decades ago. The second best time is right now, or so goes the old joke. So we're talking during COP28 and 118 countries just committed to a global target of tripling renewables, including wind and solar, by 2030, taking us to 11 terawatts of capacity by that time. But what if we'd started much earlier? Dr. Suganda Srivastav is a postdoc researcher at Oxford, studying the history of clean power innovation. In October, she published a paper about George Cove, who claimed to have invented a solar panel and battery system that could power a house for a week. But then he said he was kidnapped and told to stop his research and development on solar. How would the world have been different if, in fact, his work had continued? So, Suganda, you're very welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Tell us, what were you doing when you came across this story? Thank you so much, Richard, for having me on the program. So I'm a researcher on energy innovation. And uh, for one of my other projects, I wanted to track the history of solar patents. So I went on the Google Patent Database and just typed in a couple of keywords uh, linked to solar. And I 
saw the usual suspects. The Bell Labs work on solar came up. There was uh, the Australian laboratory that has made progress on silicon. But then there was this other entry, which was George Cove's thermoelectric generator. And from the title, it wasn't immediately obvious that it was a solar patent. But once he went into some of the descriptions and the wording, it became very clear that he was talking about solar. So that's what started a sort of trail of research thereafter. It was an absolutely fascinating piece of history because I didn't know personally that there was work on solar photovoltaics back in 1909. That was a shock for me. Right. Because most people would associate it as being much, much later of things like Bell Labs in the 1950s and then in the space program because it was such an expensive thing to be doing at the time. So you were looking around for solar patent information and you mentioned thermoelectric. I looked online at actually the patent itself. And yeah, it's not immediately clear to me as a non-specialist that this is related to solar photovoltaics. So can you just explain what he claimed to have you know, invented and, and why that would have been significant? Sure. And um, I'm not a physicist either. So I actually at that point relied on a lot of other historical information. It, essentially, this is the story as covered by journalists like yourselves, Richard, but back in 1909, there is the World Technical Magazine. And that outlet said that George Cove was playing around with this invention and saw that when exposed to sunlight, it generates a current. And his intention initially was more um, related to just a normal conventional thermal generator, but it was this particular property of a current being generated when exposed to sunlight that was actually quite novel and and, and, and quite interesting. Um, and there's a bunch of other resources that have, have studied this. I mean, there was a, there's an academic at New Brunswick, Dennis Bartels, who who talked about the reception that George Cove got to this invention. He mounted it on a rooftop in New York and had a demonstration and investors got very much interested. He actually moved to New York to show the solar panel. He had a track record of actually multiple patents and multiple inventions and, and accolades even from the Canadian government. So this is a person of an inventive nature who seems to have stumbled upon the photovoltaic effect before or almost at the same time as when Einstein was working on it theoretically. Right. And so let's let's dig into that for in a, in a moment. But I suppose just take us back to George Cove himself. You, you mentioned he had already had a track record of looking at different forms of energy and developing some intellectual property. So where does his story start? Yes. So George Cove... Um, he grew up in Nova Scotia in Canada, and at the time when he was uh, just growing up, he would have witnessed the emergence of the railways that connected his town to other parts of the country. I think it was a time of opportunity and invention. He um, lived very close to the Bay of Fundy, which has some of the most powerful tides in the world. And I think here was a man who was very inspired by the force of nature because before solar, he actually worked on tidal energy and he had a tidal patent. Today, we would understand that more like hydroelectric. Um, but that was a, a particular invention for which he got recognized by uh, the local government and got some accolades. 
He also did other things. I mean, he worked on an electric recording device so that piano music could get recorded. He worked on electric watches. And he just seemed to be of an extremely inventive disposition. So around the time, you know, the railways were being built, he he was getting coverage in local newspapers. And like many other talented young people, I think he basically got discovered. Um, some people, after some demonstrations in Canada, people were like, why don't you go to the U.S.? You know, go go demonstrate your things. He then went to Somerville, Massachusetts and um, did some more demonstrations of his various inventions. But the one that got a, a lot of interest was the solar panel. And, and you can see some of his investors or, or people who were interested said, look, great device. I have no doubt this works very well, but I'm only going to invest in your solar panel if you have a battery because, you know, I need to know that this is a stable source of power. So I find you can see this sort of interesting conversations in the archive. And it's just fascinating to see that that conversation was happening in the years between 1906 and 1909. Got it. As you mentioned, Einstein has only in 1905 put out his paper explaining the photovoltaic effect and how that works at the, the quantum level. And so trying to describe what he was seeing at the time would have been difficult. Even now, one of the things that's been challenging as people forecast how quickly solar would take off potentially once prices continue to drop um, is that it's the first form of mass energy generation that doesn't involve spinning a turbine. Um, it involves a different kind of process altogether. And intuitively, even now, people still have their a difficult time getting their heads around that. So I suppose it's not entirely surprising that in 1909 or 1906, that he would be struggling to figure out a language to describe what he was observing. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Although I think this is a great moment for me to paint the picture of our energy world back then. Um, I think we, you know, when he was growing up, there was still a decent amount of biomass energy, wood burning. Um, there was, you know, very basic kerosene. So standard oil uh, definitely did exist. And, uh, you know, their rise was, as you know, in, in the late 1800s, kerosene was uh, became an extremely popular product that was used, again, just through simple burning. But we didn't have the type of sophisticated energy infrastructure that we know today. So Edison Electric that was building out the power grid, I mean, that was happening in the very late 1800s, spilling over to the early 1900s. So it's important to remember that we didn't have the type of easily accessible, widespread grid-based electricity that we know today. And even um, if we look at this history of solar, um, then solar wasn't, George Cove Solar wasn't too far away from the very first coal-fired power plant. I think it was Pearly Street Station. Um, so it basically paints this new picture where we see that solar actually, solar photovoltaics in particular as a concept and as a, as a tangible invention, go way further back than we imagine at a time when many people didn't know grid-based electricity, frankly, very well. And, and grid-based electricity itself was very novel and emerging and being built out. Um, so I think, I think that's one part of it. 
in the just for the masses. In terms of the science, you're extremely correct. I mean, you know, just this conception of the photovoltaic effect uh, was extremely new and novel. And I think George Cove probably faced a science communication challenge uh, in saying, hey, look, I was trying to build this generator and then I played around with the materials and I realized that the proportion of thermal electricity versus sunlight-based electricity started changing. And he kept tweaking it over and over again till it was essentially completely a photovoltaic generator. Um, and the the language to describe the science, as you very correctly know, was nascent and underdeveloped and and something I think he probably struggled with himself. Right. And as you say, I mean, this was a wild period, both for energy and for politics and economics in the U.S. in the late 19th century and early part of the 20th century. You referred to Standard Oil and we had these rise of monopolies. And even in, in something that now we would consider to be on the clean side of energy generation, we had this amazing rivalry. Thomas Edison has his first coal-fired electricity generation station on Pearl Street in New York, serving, I think, 59 households. <laughs> but, um, you know, had a, a tremendous falling out with Nikola Tesla, you know, who was advocating for a different way of moving electrons around um, to the point where there was amazing propaganda wars between the two of trying to dis one trying to discredit the other, right? Oh, yes. I mean, I and I think this context is extremely important to mention. Um, the current wars, I'll just put a plug in for that movie, absolutely fascinating and worth watching to understand the context of Edison being in fierce competition with Nikola Tesla to the extent that he deployed some, quote, business practices that would not be tenable at all today. And I think that's the interesting thing to remember here. It was the Wild West of American capitalism or of capitalism in general. So many of the responsible business norms and practices that we take for granted today did not exist then. Even if we look at the history of monopoly regulation, the Sherman Act, um, many, many of you and Richard, I know you know this history super well, you know, this is a relative, you know, latecomer to the canon of legislation. And for the most part, Standard Oil got away relatively unscathed and managed to control 90% of, of oil refining. Um, and I think the 10% they left was very much intentional just to keep up some semblance of some competition. And as an innovation scholar, when I see that, my mind immediately goes to the whole host of innovators and entrepreneurs that could have been, but simply weren't because you had the emergence of Goliath monopolies. Um, so, and, and, and not only just the emergence of Goliath monopolies, but in terms of the in exertion of power that they were able to wield and the, the type of practices that they deployed. So... Right. It, right. That's a very important context to remember in all of this. And so here we have this, so we have this wild scene where kind of business operates in a, a very no holds barred fashion. And we have emerging different technologies for how you're going to power new parts of the economy. So this is all happening at the same time. And so here we have this Canadian inventor who has been fascinated with tidal power and hydro and whatever else. And has come to New York to demonstrate this thing that he thinks he's found. And he's raising money. He's getting money from investors. And then 
thinks he's had this breakthrough where you can generate enough electricity to power a house using just solar panels. And he gets all this internet kind of media attention. But then why have we never heard of him? What happened? <laughs> okay, great. So in so his patent was granted in 1906. And in spring of 1909 was the huge flurry of media attention. So there were newspapers and locations as far away as Australia that were talking about the fantastic Sunray machine. And there were local newspapers and technical magazines. That was the moment where the media really got on top of it and thought about the potential of harnessing the sun. So Rene Homer, who is the author of the World Technical Magazine piece on George Cove's invention, he said, this can lift the masses out of poverty uh, because it's it's sunlight. Everyone has access to sunlight. It, you know, you don't need any huge infrastructure here. You buy the panel and 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 it's sunshine. It's 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 available. Um, so there was just this huge kind of uh, kind of interest and hope. And after the surge in media attention, which was spring 1909, when we fast forward to the autumn of 1909. We hear from, um, you know, I saw this in, in an article in the New York Herald from 1909 that George Cove has been kidnapped and he was told to relinquish his patent and seize the business as a condition for his release. Now, we don't know what was agreed to, but he was subsequently released at Bronx Zoo. And we see some articles later on saying that, you know, there's a lot of speculation did George Cove stage the kidnapping for further publicity, you know, to to capitalize or or was this a genuine event? But the long and short of it is that Sun Electric Generator, his corporation, was subsequently deregistered from the, the company database. And we didn't hear anything more about these solar panels from there on. Gotcha. So we've got this situation where he's claimed he's been kidnapped and we know the business disappears. And we know that he's in letters blaming one of his business partners. But we can't say it's impossible that he decided to create this as a stunt, either to get out of promises he's made to investors or indeed just to try to get more attention that evil forces were conspiring to try and prevent him from de delivering this amazing thing to the world. What's your gut on on whether or not you know that has any validity? What, what's, who's, who's telling the truth? Yeah, sure. Uh, great question. So here's how I think about it. I think George Cope was an inventor. And the reason I say that is because anyone can check on the record that he had a string of patents that were vetted and approved by patent offices. And the way patent offices vet patents is that they get a uh, they get an expert who evaluates it. There's a committee and uh, it's it's a pretty rigorous scientific process. And this wasn't just one patent. You know, he's a serial inventor. So there's a track record. So I have no doubt that George Cove really uh, was an inventor and that I think he actually did stumble upon a, a, the photovoltaic effect experimentally. Now, I think it was a rudimentary solar panel. Fine. The same way, actually, oil was very rudimentary, right? The kerosene of those days is, is very rudimentary compared to what we use today. But I think right. I think it was it was there um, on how a naive inventor, you know, falls into the trap of capitalism and maybe gets into the bad company of investors. I think that's very much possible. I think, you know, you're looking at someone if we think of Nikola Tesla or or I think George Cove, 
the first and foremost investors, I don't think they're savvy about business. I don't think they're necessarily even savvy about individuals. It's probably pretty easy to take advantage of these types. And I don't rule out the possibility that, you know, George Co. fell into bad company with the sort of money bags and the capitalists and the investors. And, you know, they probably, there was an accusation that they inflated the value of Sun Electric far more than it should have been. And, and that's all possible. But I am very skeptical of claims that the invention itself had no merit. And that's just because you would then, if you're going to make that claim, then you have to defend yourself that all of the science writers who were describing the invention in 1909 were wrong. You would have to say the U.S. Patent Office was wrong. You would have to say that some of the investors who uh, you know, declined to invest but wrote their reasons, they were also wrong. Some of them were like, oh, the invention is fantastic. I have no doubt it works, but still not interested. So, you know, it's, it, at that point, you're then uh, having to defend yourself quite a lot. And I'm not sure if I would necessarily uh, go down that path of saying the whole thing was a sham. Right. And this story has been told before. But what you did was something that you took the story a lot further, right? You actually take, took the story and applied your own research techniques to say what would have happened if 09, when he was disappeared, uh, and then his company ceased to exist. You know, if that hadn't happened, what how things would have been different. So tell us about that. Yeah, sure. So the thought experiment is basically simple. We know that innovation in one area begets more innovation in that area. Um, it's a concept that we call path dependency. And you can think of it as spillovers, right? If I have a really cool idea, it might inspire a lot of other people to delve into it. And conversely, you have the negative sentiments, right? So if I've pursued an idea and I'm kidnapped because of it, then actually everyone around me might say, well, you know, let's not get mingled up in all this. It just seems messy, you know, Let, let's just keep away from it. And it's this kind of idea of path dependency or maybe for your listeners, think of it as the butterfly effect in some way, right? There, there are crucial moments in history that can create bifurcation points where we go one way or the other. So I just take these concepts and I say, well, was this a bifurcation point? Because, you know, we saw solar not only being squashed, but actually a really severe negative sentiment emerging around it. And uh, as a thought experiment, where would the world have been had that not happened? And so I use something called Wright's Law. So Wright's Law is the empirical observation that with every doubling of production of a certain good, you have a constant and very stable decline in the costs of production. And for solar panels from 1976 to the present day, with every doubling of solar PV production, we've had roughly a 20% decline in costs. And that has meant that... Um, in 2016-2017, solar became, on average, the cheapest form of electricity in the world. So I'm like, what if instead of 1950 or 1976 as the starting point, what if it was 1909? And can I just backcast that relationship? Um, so if you do backcasting, you need a couple of assumptions, right? So you have that power law, that curve, which we know as Wright's law, and for which we have data on solar from 1976 to the present day. 
But if you backcast it, you'll need to have some assumptions around what was the quantity of solar being produced in 1909? How would it have grown, et cetera, et cetera. So you can plug in some assumptions around that. And I was actually quite conservative with some of the assumptions, right? So I, I assumed that in the very early years, um, the amount of solar George Cove produced would be one-tenth of what a single American household uses in terms of their electricity, and that the growth rate in the early years was very tiny, you know, around 3%. And then when we go into the present day, it comes in line with what we saw empirically. And that shows that we could have had solar become the cheapest form of electricity around the turn of the millennium. So think Spice Girls, okay, when the Spice Girls were popular, and when Al Gore released The Inconvenient Truth, at that point, if you believe my thought experiment, that's when solar could have been cheaper. And that actually would have avoided a huge buildout of other forms of dirty energy because everyone likes affordable energy, right? We want to build the most affordable, affordable form of electricity. So had that turning point happened much sooner, we would have saved a significant amount of CO2 emissions and lock in to dirty infrastructure. Right. It's a fascinating, as you say, thought experiment. You say your, your assumptions are conservative. So if they were less conservative, you're saying that we could have achieved the moment where solar became the cheapest form of mass generation for electricity at the turn of the millennium. If your assumptions were slightly less conservative, how much earlier could it have been? And how would the world in your mind have been different? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, when you tweak some parameters, it can even go back to the 90s um, and solar being the tipping point, uh, solar becoming cheaper. Um, but I think the interesting thing here is that um, I still assume the structure or, uh, you know, the same structure of the energy system, one could even go uh, a step further and say, hey, look, if grid-based electricity was in competition with off-grid solar from the get-go, we might have had a very different energy paradigm altogether. There would have been a massive incentive to invest in batteries and innovation related to energy storage from the get-go which wasn't the case, um, you know, up till very recently, right? Our interest in batteries is actually mm. relatively recent in, in the history of energy. Um, so actually, my thought experiment still assumes that um, the technologies we have are the technologies we have. Someone could say, hey, look, Saganda, but if you're going to raise this thought experiment, what if there was a complete paradigm shift? And Maybe there would be a whole bunch of new technologies related to handling intermittency and handling storage that would have been part of the conversation far, far earlier. So in that sense, I guess I really want to highlight that, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's one of those uh, crazy bifurcation moments where we really need to think, um, think for ourselves on what that counterfactual could have looked like. And I've talked to people from um, from a host of different backgrounds. Some say, okay, maybe things would have gone the same way. And others say, uh, actually, my uncle who works at an electricity utility, he's like, well, look, we're really struggling with our business model because of off-grid solar being so popular. 
Um, and he's like, if that was a threat from the get-go, we might have seen a really different type of energy system. And and this is a person who works at an Australian utility. So it, it's interesting to hear different people's thoughts. And I, I suppose in that sense, it's not just the energy system that would have been different, right? If you were really to go a little bit wild with the thought experiment and think about the other parameters that were in play, distributed generation becomes a thing much sooner. And if storage technologies have a similar learning curve, then you just wind up with a completely different picture of all sorts of things. Everything from how you develop things that feed off of that electricity to whether or not you need to actually have geopolitical competition for oil in the same way that you did in the mid and late 20th century. It gets pretty wild pretty quickly, which is fascinating. Before we, we kind of wrap, do we ever know what happened to George Coe? So he just kind of disappeared or I mean, did he, you know, wh where did he end up? Do we know? That's a great question. And I honestly, um, you know, one of the motivations for writing the story and the thought experiment was to incentivize others to go look for what happened. Um, he, his most inventive period was pre-kidnapping. He seems to have diverted his attention to other innovations still related to electricity, but never touching the topic of solar again. Um, at some point, he it seems like his reputation was smeared quite a bit. So one of my favorite uh, lines that I see in a newspaper article later is that it claims that, oh, George Cove didn't do anything. His solar panel got electricity from Edison wires. And I love that because if anyone has seen Current Wars, uh, the movie on Edison versus Nikola Tesla, the way Edison discredits Nikola Tesla who 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 was propagating for the alternating current, which turned out to be absolutely essential. It's in the similar spirit, you know, where you're just sort of writing off this inventor, calling him crazy and, and, and saying, you know, it just doesn't work or it's dangerous. And I think that's a really interesting thing where we see George Cove was smeared, but there's this kind of interesting piece of evidence that, well, Eden Hoon, who was building out the electric grid, was definitely, most likely, uh, in a business which would be threatened by off-grid solar. And we see that. Utilities talk about that today. They talk about how distributed renewable energy is uh, cannibalizing their revenues. What I take away from it is that, look, whether or not you believe George Cove was the aha moment, I think the way we should be thinking about this is that it wasn't just an attack on George Cove. It was an attack on an idea. And I think that's my starting point. The idea of photovoltaics was attacked. And whether George Cove had the best invention, I don't know. But I know that if you kidnap someone and that's based on, uh, you know, kind of what they're doing and solar as a concept, then you'll probably spook a lot of investors and other entrepreneurs who might just say, well, it's best to keep out of this. Um, and that that right. sort of narrative is kind of bolstered by these other movies like Current Wars or or even Titan, you know, seeing the the Cleveland massacre and what J.D. Rockefeller did. You know, you realize that you should you should watch your step as an innovator and entrepreneur back in those days. It was not easy. So if this were a true crime podcast, we'd be looking at means, motive and opportunity. And it would seem that there are certainly plenty of people around at the time who would have had all three in order to discredit the idea. If it's a whodunit. The victim isn't necessarily even George Cove. It's kind of the climate. Completely, completely. And I, and I think, you know, even 
even if we uh, set George Cove aside, we should all be asking ourselves, if Standard Oil was allowed to become so large, that probably led a lot of people to just think, hey, actually, I have this super cool alternative energy idea, but what's the point? I mean, look, look at their market share. They've just basically addressed the energy problem. And that's, I think, why we understand today that monopolies have this dangerous element that, you know, if you have a huge monopoly, it actually disincentivizes innovation and entry of firms in an area. Um, and I think that's exactly part of this history. Um, and we see it in the dynamic that they've amassed, monopolies amass so much wealth that they deploy to change the political system through lobbying and through through laws that are highly preferential. So if we fast forward to today's COP28 and we see the way the lobby and, and, and you know, the, the kind of oil companies are operating within this climate conversation, it, it's absolutely stunning, right? I mean, we've seen statements from ExxonMobil or even from the COP president that are frankly extremely damaging to to the climate agenda. That's absolutely the, the one of the topics that we're certainly going to be exploring further this week. And Suganda, it's been terrific having you. Before we let you go, perhaps you, you could recommend things that you've read or watched or listened to that have you know, impacted and influenced your your research, your views on climate climate tech. You know, what would you recommend for our listeners? Sure. Ida Turnbull was the original investigative journalist. Richard, we talked about this, and she documents uh, some of the practices deployed by J.D. Rockefeller to consolidate Standard Oil's monopoly. I think that's fascinating con historical context. The current wars I've mentioned so many times. Go watch it. There's also a book, I think it's called Titan. Um, and it's, again, about Standard Oil, but it just goes into kind of the depths uh, of, of that history and of, of the individual. Then I think, honestly, this is a really nerdy thing to suggest. But if you do a scan of Google patents and look at renewable energy effort, it's just a sort of fascinating history to dive into because you sort of see these scattered efforts and Really, um, you can connect that inventive activity to a sort of systems perspective on was the capitalist system or the political system conducive to these ideas, many of which, by the way, are winning ideas. We now know today that solar PV was completely a winning idea. So the question is, once you look at these efforts throughout history, what questions do arise in terms of how we can make our system conducive to new ideas and supportive of entrepreneurs? Um, I think today our system is much better, but it's still worth asking, uh, you know, can we be better in supporting innovation? Well, I think that's a perfect place for us to leave it. Thank you so much, Suganda, for taking the time and talking to us. And we would encourage people, we'll leave in the show notes, to both check out the recommendations that you've you've offered listeners, but also to your work. So the paper that you've authored, uh, your thought experiment, as well as that piece in the conversation. And I suppose we can all hope that others, uh, perhaps even people on this podcast, might be picking up some of the breadcrumbs and following that story even further. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. This was a pleasure. And yes, do follow the breadcrumb trail and let me know where it leads. Fabulous. Well, thanks again. And uh, thanks for taking the time this week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Wicked Problems. 
And if you like this conversation, please share it and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk, where you can also find more episodes of with Richard Elvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. And consider becoming a paid subscriber to help support our work. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. For now, thanks for listening.